You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good evening, hello. Hi, this is Plato's Cave. You're listening to 3RRR, 102.7. This is a film criticism show. We're going to be here for the next hour. My name is Thomas Cordwell, and in the cave, a regular Plato's Cave co-hosts, Cerise Howard and Alexandra Heller Nicholas. Good evening to you both. Hello. Hello. We're going to begin tonight's show with the latest film by Greek director Yorgos Lanthimos, The Lobster. This is set in an absurdist world where the guests of a hotel have 45 days to find a romantic partner. Failure to do so will result in them being surgically transformed into an animal. Later in the show, we'll look at the latest film by Steven Spielberg, Bridge of Spies, uh, where during the Cold War in the late 1950s, the Americans arrested a Soviet spy and then went through the motions of giving him a fair trial. Things got even more complicated when both the Russians and then the East Germans ended up with their own American prisoners whom they wanted to exchange. And finally, we're going to take a look at the home entertainment release of the latest film by Andrew Bukowski. Uh, not Bukowski, Bajowski, an independent American filmmaker who is often often credited as being one of the founders of the Mumblecore movement. His latest film, Results, is a sort of romantic comedy about personal trainers. But first, let's dive into The Lobster. Cerise, I believe you're kicking us off on this one. believe so, Thomas. Uh, the Lobster is an Irish, UK, Greek, French, Dutch co-production. It's from everywhere, much like its cast and crew. Yordos uh, Lanthimos previously uh, has had enjoyed great cult success with a couple of very deadpan films, um, Alps, and, and previously especially Dogtooth, which probably everyone here is an admirer of to at least some extent. This new film has an all-star cast. Um, there's real marquee value here with the likes of Colin Farrell in the lead role, but Rachel Weisz as well, an Oscar winner, no less. Colin is David, a frumpy, out-of-shape, uh, I don't know, 30-something, 40-something guy who has been ditched by his partner. And in this peculiar dystopian new world order, he is therefore shuttled off to a hotel wherein he has 45 days to find a partner or become the uh, the animal of his choice, which, uh, as it so happens, is a lobster, for reasons. Um, there, there's no particular uh, science or backstory to this. It's just what it is. It's just one of these wonderful, absurdist premises, and you just have to accept it. And if you can't accept that from the get-go, you're going to really struggle with <laughs> the lobster. <laughs> Similarly, uh, the wonderful advice dispensed from uh, Olivia Coleman as the hotel manager when discussing his choice of uh, would-be animal, um, advising, for example, that a wolf and a penguin can never be friends. So he's, he's picked well with a lobster. If you with mind, being mindful of choice of partner in future. Um, David has actually arrived with his dog. Um, his dog is his brother. So very quickly we, we established that um, not everyone's going to come out of this whole situation uh, for the better. And uh, th- there are two, two settings to this film. Both really apply arbitrarily rules uh, to life that are cruel and unusual uh, and which might give any of us out there, like myself, who are single pause for thought as to whether that is uh, a preferable way of being uh, to the tyranny of coupledom, 
So within the hotel, you have 45 days to find a partner, which you can augment if you are successful in the hunt, uh, wherein you hunt loners, the people who have opted for the other way of life, which is to say they've gone rogue. And whilst being loners, they are sort of organised into a resistance unit, just one that must never fraternise too closely. There must be no love. Oh, such a cruel, brave new world. I, um, I, I found this film... Uh, Equally hilarious and disquieting, and actually, ultimately, for a, a film I found very funny, extremely depressing. I, I saw this with a, a dear old friend of mine, and we both struggled to converse after it <laughs> as, we, as we went out for dinner and um, just pondered our place in the universe. It is, it is very funny. Um, but, look, I just saw a, a live production of 1984 at the Melbourne Festival recently and there are scenes in this film which evoked that production and the source material extremely vividly mm. uh, certainly the, uh, little tests of the measure of love and whether people might betray uh, a supposed loved one for um, in order just to stay alive uh, it came up um, no, there, there's some real um, what, what was that board game years ago? Was it called Scruples, where you'd be given a little ethical conundrum <laughs> yeah, to yeah, ponder? Yeah. yeah, there's little moments like that l- thrown into the fabric of this film where you might actually remove yourself from the absurd premise and actually pause to consider what you would do if um, placed in as uh, dreadful and, and dire a situation as this. Nick Cave, where the wild, uh, where oh, the wild gosh. things grow, where the wild roses grow. That's somehow a part of the fabric of this film too. Uh, lots of string quartet action, but weird recitals of that song's lyrics had me pondering, looking for deeper significance. I don't know if either of you two found it, but um, I, I sought it. Well, it's, it's, it's a song about uh, a man who destroys the woman he loves. So yeah, the, it's a murder the, This film, yeah, plays with mm. ideas of love being destructive or, yes. or if you're less cynical, maybe finding love through all the destructiveness that's forced upon you. Certainly yeah. a close link to violence. Certainly, yeah. certainly that. I think that that's the, the energy. Yeah. It's a beautiful sequence where Colin Farrell sings that song. <laughs> off key. Yeah. Off key. Off key. Yeah, yeah. Well, ev- everyone's uh, performance style in this film is off key, you could say. It, it, they're deadpanning it beautifully, uh, unemotively, and yet with so much pathos. And there's uh, this all star cast John C. Riley, uh, the lovely Leah Sado. Ben Wishaw as a limping man seeking similar. <laughs> Only when I say similar, uh, it seems quite important to note that the, it's a very heteronormative environment, this hotel. Uh, to be fair, David is given a choice at the very outset. Would he like a, a heterosexual or homosexual coupling? But he's not able to change his mind. It has to be an either-or. And we don't see anything within the film that suggests that homosexual coupling is actually occurring, unless it's totally cordoned off into another weird little universe maybe a sequel who knows um the well, lobster too yeah i mean the gag with that is everything is about absolutes they won't allow any sort of fluidity it's one thing yeah. or the other because that gag's then followed up with the joke about the shoes where he's told you can't have a nine and a half it yes. has to be a nine or a ten so it's it sort of yeah well, we see the heteronormative side of it but that's mm-hmm. sort of i think the gag is more this is a world where it's one thing or the other and if you yeah. don't if you're not classified correctly we have problems yeah Alex, did you have problems? I had no problems. I was bereft of problems with this film. I, I agree with you. I think it's the warmest film about coldness that I've ever seen. I, I just... I can't even describe this film. I, I want to take it out to dinner. I want to bake for it. I want to write poetry about the lobster. I love it so much. I really like Dogtooth, as you quite rightly observed. Um, but to be honest, I think I was more of a fan of um, Alexandros uh, Avranaz's Miss Violence on that whole new Greek cinema front. 
So I was keen to see the lobster, but not as excited as perhaps other people have been. Um, but this film alone, I think, shows that Lantha Moss is just, just full stop one of the best directors working at the moment. I mean, this is a guy on top of his game. This is just a a remarkable film. I'm one of the few people that can also confess quite a rare thing in that I, I would consider myself a Colin Farrell fan. Oh, I'm a big Colin Farrell um, fan, especially yeah. ever since In Bruges. In Bruges. In Bruges. This mean- is the film that really picks up where you wanted him to go after In Bruges. I think that he has such immaculate comic timing. Yeah. There's just um, and this this is just the precise film that he should be kind he should be doing. It's exactly bang on. Who surprised me? I'm not a huge Rachel Weisz fan, um, so I, in a way I was more surprised by her because I think she was really fantastic in this film. I really liked her in Terence Davies' Deep Blue Sea, but I think that's the only other time that she's really grabbed me, and I, I was really quite devastated by her performance in this oh, film. I really enjoyed mm. her in a, a comic mode as well in Brothers Bloom a few years back. I thought she was terrific in that as well. I'm a huge fan of Rachel Weisz. So all the films you've mentioned and this one, yeah, I think she's great. And, I'll, I'll, yeah, Colin Farrell too. He's one of these direct. He's one of these actors who's done a lot of bad things, and people forget that, you know, I, I like to celebrate people for their triumphs, and I think his triumphs are enough to take him over the line of being he's a good actor who we should enjoy. In, in Bruges, I think, was a game-changer on that front, but I yeah. think that this confirms that that wasn't a fluke. Yeah, there are um, other ones that don't come to mind right now, but, um, yeah. Total Recall remake? He was in Night... Uh, there's a horror film that he's in. Oh, remake. He, he was in the Fright Night. Fright Night remake. remake which I quite enjoyed, I actually. love the Fright Night yeah. remake. Yeah. I'm glad that we've gone from the Anthem to Fright Night. That makes sense. <laughs> but it's a great cast. And, it's perfect. And they all, I mean, these are actors from very different acting sensibilities too. And they all just come together and form this kind of cohesive, very stylized way of acting. I've seen this film twice. And the second time, I was a lot more aware of how stylized the dialogue was. And it occurred to me that if you're not on side with this film, that would drive mm. you crazy. And it's the kind of thing I don't normally like either. You see it a lot in the theatre. You often get university theatre where people talk about deep and dark, disturbing stories, about this kind of childlike fairy tale voice. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't know, it's been very fashionable for at least 20 years now. But um, in The Lobster, it just took, it, it, it worked. It's interesting that you both have mentioned plays because when I was watching this, I think that it's a very fresh, original film. And I think that you'd be really hard pressed to challenge. To, you know, to argue anything different. But I was thinking a lot of a play by a guy called Eugene Unesco from 1959 called Rhinoceros, which is another kind of dark animal fable. Josh Earl brought um, this up with me when I spoke yeah, about it, it on the breakfast. It, they're just yeah. the perfect double bill, I think. is uh, the, the film adaptation is from 1974 with Gene Wilder, Karen Black and the legendary Zero Mostel. I just have to kind of give a shout out to Zero Mostel there. These would be the perfect double bill. They're very different kinds of comedy, but they're very black. And it is this, you know, this animal fable, this transformation story um, as a kind of cultural critique. Now, tell me what you think, because it's, I think The Lobster is a film that's very much open to interpretation. I mean, there, there are several things that are really fun about this film. And I agree with you, Cerise. I think this is a cruel film. It's a depressing film. It's also the funniest thing I've seen this year. Absolutely. But I think it's very open. Yeah, the two things that are great about it is seeing is how this world works, so seeing all the various rules that come into to, to place, and also how open it is to interpretation. And I've been curious that a few critics have said, you know, this is a film that is... Um, it's a vicious satire of our obsession with coupledom and, and whether it's through popular culture or the way society is created, everyone is meant to find the perfect partner in the end. And then these critics say, 
and then be very disappointed by the second half of the film that doesn't carry our reading of it to, into the way that we would like it to, which I find curious because this I don't think this film is necessarily a, sat- a satire on coupledom and forcing people to be, become couples because the second half of the film is a vicious satire on people who are determined to be single. So I, mean, I, I read this yeah. as a film about extremism and this idea of absolutes, that you have to be one thing or another, and people will constantly argue that whatever life situation they're in, it is the right one and everyone must be the same as them. For me, it's a film about defamiliarisation, that he's making all kind of relationships strange, whether it's being single, being in a, being in a couple... It's all strange. He, he's presenting them as being kind of weird and, and yeah, defamiliarised. And I think that that's what, you know, it's, I'm not the first person to say it, but great art defamiliarises. And there's something really wonderfully uh, discomforting about scenes where singles and couples mix awkwardly, each of them with a, a, a hint of it being uh, all for performance as well. So when they visit the leader of the loner's parents, um, you know, the, the, loner, <laughs> the loner leader just sits off to herself and scowls a lot whilst... Um, uh, David and um, actually she's not even given a proper name uh, Rachel Weisz, she's simply a short-sighted woman Yeah, I think David's the only character with a name Yeah, and, and they uh, uncomfortably go through the routine of being uh, a couple and then a bit later on actually overdo being a couple and it's hilarious but you also know it's, it's, it's not going to end well because there's this sudden clash of absolutes and yeah. Um, yeah, it's not that they simply negate one another it's going to have to end in annihilation we know it has to go somewhere very very bad yeah so it, it is it's, it's something very bunwellian about all of this um, oh yeah, yeah the, the yeah. cruelty in it in this film uh and the gleeful cruelty. the gleeful cruelty yeah. and and to the audience too in terms of even just the occasional horrifying spectacle on screen which it, the film doesn't flinch from showing some really nasty nasty yeah. things humans and animals don't come out terribly well no. in this film yeah no and it, um, without any spoilers uh, the ending is extremely cruel <laughs> Because uh, a whole lot is left to the imagination, even though I think everyone will imagine much the same thing. I burst into laughter. Yeah. And when it cut to credits, yeah. I just howled with laughter. I thought that was the perfect ending. I, I agree. Yeah. I can't imagine that film ending any other way. Because the film is just so tantalising. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it's not a narrative-driven film as such, but it's a film about these moments. And I love that idea of defamiliarisation because that's what it's doing. It's breaking down humour and activity and showing us how absurd we all are and how we perform our roles as think- partner or single person. Person. And I think that we're kind of demonstrating that in a way in that as, you know, whether we're single or in relationships, we've all come out of it rethinking that those kind of classifications, which I think is is precisely the task at hand. I think that's exactly what he was intending to do to make us rethink those things. I love it. And just quickly before we wrap this up, what animal would you be? <laughs> I hadn't put it in, oh, like a domestic cat, surely. A dingo. Or, I'd be a dingo. Actually, you know what? A penguin because they get to dress sharply. <laughs> Mm, just don't you know that if you you can't hook up with a wolf then what about you Cerise? what animal would you be oh, i fancy i'd be an owl you'd be a great owl uh, well i could be a great owl but i'd especially care to be an eagle owl Bubo, oh, you've Bubo. actually thought this through oh, you came in much. prepared too much you're listening to plato's cave with an eagle owl a dingo and a cat penguin hybrid Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You are listening to Triple R. The show is Plato's Cave. You're listening to Thomas Cerise and Alex. And we haven't turned into animals yet, so we can move on with the next review, which is Bridge of Spies, a film that's sort of part legal drama, part thriller, part historical epic. Um... 
It's inspired by the, the, the title card at the start tells us it's inspired by true events, which is sort of shorthand for saying massive liberties were taken with what really happened. But I did do a bit of research and the core story seems to check out. In 1957, during the early years of the Cold War, an insurance claims lawyer from Brooklyn was asked to defend a captured Soviet agent. Uh, he then later had to, the insurance lawyer that is, had to later travel to Berlin just after the construction of the Berlin Wall to negotiate a prisoner exchange with both the Russians and the East Germans. Bridge of Spies is directed by Steven Spielberg and it's from a script by a playwright named Matt Charman who, um, I think this is only his second film script and the script was significantly then revised by Joel and Ethan Cohen. This creates a very unusual tension between Spielberg's nostalgia and sentimentality and the Cohen's cynicism. Between Spielberg's talent at immersing the viewer into the world of the film and the Cohen brothers for being far more self-aware. Uh, and between Spielberg's Spielberg's ability to craft identifiable and sympathetic characters and the Cohen's tendency to almost to, to, to toy with characters being a little bit more stylized and archetypal. It stars Tom Hanks as the lawyer, James B. Donovan, who is such a Spielberg character. I mean, it's like he walks straight out of a Frank Capra film. Um, but then it co-stars a guy called Mark uh, Rylance as the Russian spy Rudolf Abel, who could have come directly from any number of Coen Brothers films, just the way he holds his body and he, his face is so Coen Brothers. I love the tension between these sort of seemingly competitive sensibilities and I think they mesh together in a really interesting way. It reminded me of the tension between Spielberg's sensibility and that of Stanley Kubrick's all the way back in AI, artificial intelligence. And I realised that's probably the last film of Spielberg's I really, really loved. I know that's a hugely divisive film and not many people are into it, but I, I, I think it's a wonderful film and I love the way how crazily Spielberg's and Kubrick's visions kind of come together and fight against each other um and you get a bit of that in bridge of spies as well look i think it's certainly a far better film than pre than spielberg's previous two sort of worthy historical films being warhorse and lincoln I, look, i'll just say it right now i really really enjoyed this film i think it's the best thing spielberg has done in quite a long time look if nothing else the recreation of berlin during the period that the war went up is stunning um and i apparently that's never been done in a hollywood film before production designer adam stockhausen used the village in poland to recreate 1950s berlin but the actual um uh, line nickel bridge in berlin was used for the cinematic scenes uh, the, the climactic scenes which are also cinematic um the few scenes at the start of the film depicting the spies at work and the CIA following the Soviet spy, I found very exciting. You know, this really tense stuff. There's some beautiful editing in this film to bring together scenes that you might otherwise separate from each other. There's a scene where the US pilots who are going to go on their own spying mission are told, come over here and look at the surveillance equipment. That, that then cuts to Tom Hanks's character inspecting the captured Soviet surveillance equipment. It's an edit like that that establishes that both sides are doing the same sort of thing and we're both as culpable of each other. There's a scene at, in the court where the judge says, all rise, during the trial of the Soviet spy, and that cuts to school children in a classroom who are about to watch a propaganda film about the atomic bomb. And I think this establishes how much the Cold War affected everyday lives of people in a way that possibly we don't fully appreciate today. I mean, people are genuinely terrified about nuclear destruction. Um, I'm fascinated by the Cold War era, and I think there was a lot of overreaction and there was a lot of reaction that was actually completely understandable, that sometimes maybe we downplay. These threats were very real, at least they were very real in the minds of the people who lived through this time. But look, as well as just being a tight, 
entertaining film from my point of view anyway. I really dug the message this promotes. And I think this is a really good example of a film using a previous era to make a statement about now. And the message that comes across loud and clear in this is for your side to be the victors, you have to behave in the most most ethical, fair and, and just way possible. So this is the idea of what the lawyer was doing. He wanted to give this Soviet spy, put him through the, the, the justice system in the correct way. And by defending this anti-US guy, that was the most pro-US thing he could do. This idea that you have to be better than your, your enemies. Um, there's also quite a strong anti-death penalty message that comes through in this film as well, both for practical reasons and humanitarian reasons. Uh, it's, not, you know, it's not the most subtle message. This is a Spielberg film. But I, you know, I once wrote a piece many, many years ago about... Uh, I described Spielberg as the master of consensual manipulation in that we know what he's going to do. He, he's such a good craftsman with the way he works film style. And at least with me, he always, nearly always, convinces me to go on the ride with him and he delivers the good, the goods. I mean, the ending is cheesy, but I think it earns it. Or there's a slight bit of sweet note at the end as well that not everybody in the world is free like the Americans are. But, um... Yeah, really impressed this film. I like I liked the message. I liked how well it was crafted. I think um, Spielberg is one of those directors that I think it's almost too easy to kick the boot into. Um, I think that his real superpower is that, in a way, his films are less capital C cinema than they are ultimately really successful nostalgia generators. And just in the last week, with all of the back to the future stuff, people getting super excited about this anniversary, you actually have to be some kind of magical jerk to really deny people that kind of joy in their life and and Spielberg did that he brought that to people and I think that's amazing so you know I I, I really hesitate to kind of deride him for precisely those things I mean the things that that kind of I, I didn't have such a positive experience with this film in that um, but I kind of knew that that I find I find him a very Pollyanna-y kind of director the kind of flag-waving corny America fuck yeah jingo stuff it just gets a bit overwhelming for me but that's part of the package that's part of the Spielberg package and that's part of what he has on offer I think it's and more I'm, that James kind of Stewart kind of flag waving, waving though as opposed to Michael Bay <laughs> I think there's a world of difference between what Spielberg does and someone like Michael Bay does though I think this I mean where I would go with that conversation would be an issue of taste um, which is kind of ultimately neither here nor there from my perspective I mean I'm, I, I like Michael Bay films more than I like Steven Spielberg films but I don't really have a critical explanation for that okay. just as a spectator I just that's not I just, a conversation wow. yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry I, like, I, I butt in um, no not at all um, I mean I yeah so you know I really hesitate to kind of do a kind of list of the things that I didn't like about this film because these are precisely the things that other people really like about Spielberg um, I would agree with you that Mark... Uh, I've written his name. Rylance. Mike Rylance was amazing. Um, and I have a real... I agree with you. I have a massive fascination, um, not just with the Cold War, but also with that particular era, era in Berlin. Um, and I think... I don't know whether it was the Coens who brought this, but I think that this film is very conscious, uh, almost in explicit ways, to Carol Reed's work, not just The Third Man, but very, very much so a great film called um, The Man Between from 1953, that was filmed in Berlin in 1953 with James Mason. This real fascination. I think Carol Reed is so much in this film, in Bridge of Spies, and that's the stuff that I really, really liked about it, was this kind of almost this love letter to Carol Reed's work about that particular time and that particular mindset. Um, yeah, I mean, it's Spielberg. It's pro-American 
nostalgia porn and you either love it or you don't. And I think that I probably don't, but I, I certainly don't begrudge anybody who finds real joy in his films. Um, yeah. Uh, just but, not for, but know. I would clarify, uh, it's pro-America in America as the just nation, not America the conquerors. I think that's the big difference here. Because mm. the, 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 the image they're portraying of America is we are capable of being better than our enemy. Like, we will use justice. Yeah, I, I mean, I personally struggled. And diplomacy. I mean, this, yeah. this, this, this is a pro-diplomacy film. I read that in a very different way to you, I think. Um, like, I don't disagree with you, but, but I, I actually kind of took... The, there's a repeated image that the Tom Hanks... And I think Tom Hanks was... Even for Tom Hanks, he was a bit ham-fisted in this film. I found he pretty hard-going. Um, there's a repeated image uh, or repeated sort of... of him looking out and seeing something from a train that is very central to how mm. this film goes that I, I, I kind of really struggled with um, with that. Yeah, look, for me, the greatest pleasures in this film were just seeing a recreation of Berlin in that period. And it was, uh, as best I can tell, uncannily accurate and actually used some real locations uh, um, and used the city of Berlin, but also, as you mentioned, Thomas, this Polish city of uh, Wroclaw. And it's... uh, it, it did remind me of some other films too that had used Berlin in ruins and in fact other European cities in ruins as a backdrop to action and sometimes films even shot at the time so at the start of the whole Italian neo-realist movement there was a lot of uh, ruined Europe being um, deployed as a, a setting for often extremely grim films not concerned about international affairs usually concerned about very local and um, uh, more personal matters just with all of that as a, a terrifying backdrop and a bleak and grim backdrop but I, I did notice there were cinemas in Berlin um, and we saw what was screening there and I noticed, in fact, because I, I understand a bit of German and I can make a bit of sense of uh, Slavic languages, I was able to grasp a lot of what goes unsubtitled in this film and mm. it all sounded kosher to me as well. And it's all unsubtitled. Yeah, it is all it's an unsubtitled. Choice, it, is, yeah. it is an interesting choice. That is a little avant-garde by Spielberg's standards. Mm, I really, really like that. that that's mm. not playing to the galleries. That's mm. actually asking the audience to do a bit of work or to... I mean, I, I think it's probably clear to anyone yeah. watching what's going on, at least what the interactions are. Um, but I did notice there was a Billy Wilder film, One, Two, Three, screening yes. at the cinemas. I, I noticed that too. And I'm trying to remember the name of this other Wilder film, but there's one he shot with Berlin in ruins as a backdrop. And for the life of me right now, I can't think of what it is. I'll look it up in but the... In as the, well as One, Two, Three. Yeah, another. There's something... Um, it's not coming to... Maybe it is One, Two, Three. That's the James Cagney one, one where he's the Coke executive who yeah. has to go into Berlin. Yeah. No, there's another. It's another. I think there's another. Um... Anyway, uh, the, just that authenticity really struck me. and uh, It really felt like a lot of work had gone into that. Yeah, a tremendous amount of work. Mm. And I was, um, I've got a bit of a sense of the, the lay of the land in Berlin and I was mapping it out where these various locations and these train trips across the border. And, uh, yeah, so I was really into that uh, historical aspect of the film. Tom Hanks generally can take or leave. He's, his, his earnestness, it's this, it is this... Um, uh, what's his name? Gary, it's a bit of a cross of Gary Cooper, Gregory Peck, Jimmy Stewart, sort of all American, do the right thing sort of a guy. It's not Tom Hanks from Bachelor Party, really, is it? No, or no. Joe versus the Volcano, <laughs> or that whole golden age of Dragnet. Hanks. Yeah. yeah, Turner and Hooch. 
wasn't. Uh, I'm the one with access to a computer in the studio. Cerise, was it a foreign affair you were thinking? Probably, of, which was a uh, 1948. Yeah, that sounds about yeah. right. A one, yeah. two, three hadn't been made actually. There, there, yeah. There's a historical detail. Oh, it's incorrect. Ah, oh. uh-huh. it wasn't made until the early 60s. Oh, Stephen <laughs> <Old Shane. laughs> It's a nice nod though to the kind of filmmaker that Steven Spielberg, you know, yeah. adores. I like what you said, Thomas, about this tension between the Coen Brothers esque yeah, and too. the Spielbergian in this film. I definitely got a, a Coen vibe off um, our Russian spy. Mm friend there, especially his uh, stoicism uh, in the face of grimness no matter how things go and how whenever asked why he appears to be so unaffected, he just simply says, uh, what, was what good would it do? Yeah. yeah, That's a perfect observation, yeah. I think, um, about that particular character. Yeah. He's, yeah. Very, he's like, yeah, he's like a guy from a Cohen film. And I did, I actually love the start of this film, uh, dialogue-free uh, sort of, uh, it's just intrigue. We know people are tailing other people. We're not sure who's quite the good guys yet, who's the bad, that we get a reasonable sense, but that's that's all really beautifully staged. There are some really nice sequences in this film. Mm, definitely. Yeah, but overall, like, I, mean, I haven't seen a Spielberg film in years, in fact. This has broken a pact I hadn't really exactly made with myself, but I just hadn't gone to any trouble to catch up with this cinema in a long time, and I quite enjoyed myself, it yeah. has to be said. <laughs> Oh yes, I, I think that, that Cohen influence—you'd you, certainly see more of that when they get to when when Tom Hanks's character gets to Europe as well. I mean, he, he deals with a variety of, of East German and Russian officials who are hiding an awful lot about who they are and, and what they're doing, and and you know it, it gets. Well, it doesn't quite get absurd to the point as it does with the lobster, but it kind of has a toe in that Cohen brothers you know pool of we're not too sure how much of this is performance how much is eccentricity what's being withheld from the audience um yeah and up against tom hanks so i think yeah you're sort of channeling yeah, james stewart's the, the the big one here yeah um yeah i enjoyed that tension it's surprising the coen brothers haven't uh, had more to do with uh creating worlds of a uh, that sort of eastern european sensibility uh, absurdist stance so they've definitely dealt with the absurd a lot but this is actually really made for them that sort of eastern European bureaucratic, uh, mm. chaotic, who knows, who even knows the truth, let alone telling it. Uh, so I, I definitely see their hand in those exchanges there uh, between Hanks's character and these various officials the or family, whoever the, the hell they are. The spy's family. Yeah. There's some sequences that are pure con. Just yeah, it's pure. quite uh, absurdist farce. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're quite good fun. Yeah. Well, I liked all the Coen Brother influences and I loved all the Spielberg influences too because I'm a sap. <laughs> there, you said I'm as, I am as sentimentalist at heart. I don't think I've ever tried to hide that. Aww. That's Bridge of Spies, a Less. range of responses from Plato's Cave. Three. Triple. final film we're going to look at tonight has just been released on home entertainment it's a film called results alex it's time for mumble core cuteness by director andrew bajalski director of the 2013 film computer chess um so results is a 2015 film set in austin texas and follows the intersecting relationship of three people one is Danny, beautifully played by Karen Corrigan, who has inherited a huge amount of money straight after a pretty intense divorce. He's newly single, lonely, and has no idea how to deal with his newfound wealth, which leads him perhaps naturally to the gym. 
Now here he meets his personal trainer, Cat, played by Kobe Smulders. I know nothing about Kobe Smulders, but she gets name of the year. Hmm. I just love saying her name, Kobe Smulders. Kobe Smulders. Oh, Kobe Smulders. She smulders off the screen. She sure does. Um, Danny, like us, becomes infatuated with um, Kobe Smulders as Cat, and despite her lacking any real grasp of social niceties, um, he's pretty besotted. Now her boss at the gym is a guy called Trevor, played to perfection by one Mr Guy Pierce, using his Australian accent and really quite magically bringing the figure of the well-meaning, kind-hearted, but perhaps not totally bright Aussie jock to life. And, of course, love triangle hijinks ensue. Now, Results is a pretty low-key film. It's very dialogue-heavy, and I think it goes without saying that it's probably not for everyone, but it's very fun and it's very sweet. I really love how it captures that kind of vague liminal headspace of the newly single person kind of marked by an almost crystalline awkwardness Um, this film finds real comedy in that that dreadful sense of dislocation um it's it's a really bittersweet humor i think in in you know being focused on gym culture there's this constant rhetoric of these very goal-oriented um you know eye on the prize kind of talk and said by these really quite hollow, lonely people, um, there's there's real humour, quite miserable humour there. But it's 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 quite endearing. A f- couple of things that are worth noting: there's an awesome retro '80s aerobic opening credit sequence. I think this film is worth seeing for that, and for just one of the most deliberately confused, broken transformation montages I've seen for quite a while. I really like a good deliberately broken montage, like workout montage there's a really messed up one here it's quite brilliant a brilliant cameo by anthony michael hall from the breakfast club who is not how i remembered him from the breakfast club um and a wonderfully peculiar performance by giovanni ribisi which even for ribisi is peculiar (laughs) He's, he's quite quite something remarkable in this film i didn't really buy the ending but um, like like you said about Bridge of Spies, actually, Thomas, I kind of... I feel that this film earned the right to its ending. Um, I don't begrudge it. It's ending. Um, it's, I think it's ultimately perhaps a minor film, but I think it's a really fun one. The film has quite a bit of fun with withholding certain information at the outset, and it's it's only by degrees that we understand that this is there is actually a love triangle there. It's not just uh, the owner of a, a slightly vacuous owner of a self betterment um, or growing empire, dreams of an empire, and his um, taking care of one of his more difficult employees, <laughs> one who's prone to bouts of. Uh, vitriolic abuse of um, clients who who are not performing up to scratch or um, or even telling porkies <laughs> fibs terrible um, so it, it's quite a clever film I, the, the longer it played uh, the more I've started to become aware of actually it, it's very well scripted it is well conceived I loved his previous film Computer Chess but it was a film that really played with form a lot more than this one does and in particular the the media the, it was shot on all manner of archaic vintage video technologies to throw us into the era and in fact the form of these computer games that people were playing within the film and, and investing a huge amount of uh, emotion and pride and ego in their their computer games uh, abilities to outwit one another i love that film this i don't think is up to that standard because it's a lot more conventional but i still had a lot of fun with this and guy pierce is, is really terrific and fit 
Thomas. <laughs> Guy Pearce, he's gorgeous in this film on many he's, levels. When he says feng shui, he's got the, his Australian question, that Australian question where every sentence ends like a question. Yeah, it's he an just upward, has upward a, inflection. You, yeah. you can't fake that. Yeah. It, it just sounds really... It just sounds wrong when somebody p- puts that on, and he just has it down perfectly. And just when he says feng shui in a really determined way, I just think it's beautiful. It was a really good move letting letting him use his Australian accent because it just works with his kind of lovable jock who you really kind of do like, even though you suspect he's a bit dopey and delusional. Um, I really enjoyed this film, and it took me by surprise. I didn't quite warm to computer chess as much as you did, Cerise. I, I admired it from a distance. Mm. Um, this is sort of like an anti-rom-com, and I think that was kind of the idea. This director wanted to make a rom-com, but pretty much subvert every single expectation and rule of the genre. I mean, you don't even get an idea until about halfway. As you mentioned, you don't even get away until about halfway through the film what the actual dynamic is. Who is the person who's going to you know, get the other person. Um, uh, so I, I enjoyed that. And these characters could have been so ripe for exaggeration and parody, but I think they're all treated with a lot of sympathy. They're actually all very likeable and endearing and believable. I think it's really well written. Um, it's not sort of a big laugh-out-loud type film, but there's a lot of very, you know, what a friend of mine used to call very loud smiles. Well, there is <laughs> there is one character there who was initially presented as an, an outright parody. You could say he's the, this Russian fitness guru who... Yeah. See, this is Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, oh, I yeah. did not even yeah. pick that. He's in there. He's amazing. Yeah. I didn't pick that. Yeah. That's, that's Anthony Michael the, Hall. The, yeah. the, the yeah. nerd kid from The Breakfast Club. Yeah, and Edward mm. Scissorhands. The, the, mm-hmm. Wow. Fit. And then when we see him in his domestic space, he undercuts all of that, that parody sort of uh, characterization that he'd um, that we're, we're used to these sort of self-betterment gurus always being these larger-than-life characters full of uh, promises of or there's just lots of sloganeering really and a lot of it all seems very empty um, though perhaps others less cynical than we critical types here <laughs> they, they might promise wonderful uh, improvements I, I don't know but uh, yeah it's, it, that the scene with him and his partner in their their home as uh, Trevor goes to seek advice from his guru wonderfully undercuts his expectations and he's too thick to even see that that's what's going on so that they're really enjoyable those exchanges yeah i really really enjoyed this film and i I lied i did actually laugh during this film throughout the closing credits i I loved the 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 final scene because it's kind of they kind of set it up in a piece of dialogue you know towards the end and then they play it out and it's all so wonderfully ridiculous and it's it's something that could have been really sleazy but it's just kind of cute and this film does end up feeling really quite cute and adorable in a way I was not expecting it to and and yeah I think it really earned that kind of goodwill I was more than happy for it to play out the way, the way that it did yeah I didn't see this film coming I really enjoyed it and um, Guy, Guy Pierce. Uh, what, what, I didn't, what, <laughs> the times where I just presume he's not working, he doesn't, doesn't seem to hear anything about him. Is he doing lots of little indies? Just Is that something that he's that we just don't hear about until suddenly one lands in our lap and we start the film up and there his name appears and we, really he's not, i've gone blank i'm not i'm not his agent so i don't have his, <laughs> i don't have his, don't have his itinerary in front of me but i think he's he's a working actor he does yeah. plenty of, he did a lot of tv he was doing all the jack irish stuff at one point i think he's great i have always liked him and he's one of these actors who seamlessly moves between you know countries and and, and styles this of is, filmmaking this is one of those performances that i just can't imagine anybody else in I just can't see anybody mm. playing the role of Trevor th- as well as, as Guy Pearce did. I just think he was just perfect. Well, that's Results, starring Guy Pearce and people with lovely names that we enjoy pronouncing. <laughs> One more time. 
Kobe Smulders. Oh, God, well done. <laughs> Results is available on home entertainment through Madman Entertainment. Tonight we also looked at The Lobster, which is screening at Cinema Nova and Palace Brighton Bay through Sony Pictures. Only two cinemas that they deserve to be rewarded for screening that film. Go and see it. And Bridge of Spies is on general release through 20th Century Fox. But as for us here in Plato's Cave, we'll say good night. Good night. Good night. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.